This is part one of a part four series about Jamie Snow. In this episode, we will hear the story of Jamie Snow accompanied by Jamie's daughters, Nicole and Jessica, as well as his partner, Tammy. But before we get into the episode, we'd like to play a portion of their first podcast episode titled Snow Files, which gives a well-detailed and brief overview of Jamie's case. Here it is. And I think about this all the time. If I have to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. Jamie Snow was wrongfully convicted in 2001 for the 1991 murder and armed robbery of William Little, a gas station attendant in Bloomington, Illinois. Jamie is currently serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole in Stateville Prison. Jamie has always maintained his innocence, and he continues to do so today. The violent and senseless murder of William Little took place on Easter Sunday while Jamie was across town having dinner with his family. In the months and years that followed, police were unable to solve the crime, and the case went cold. Over eight years would pass before two overzealous rookie detectives came along to attempt to crack the case. Solving a cold case like this one in a small town would be a career builder for sure. These two detectives had no qualms with building a case using unreliable jailhouse informants and faulty eyewitness identification. These two detectives were willing to convict Jamie Snow by any means necessary, regardless of facts. In the years following Jamie's conviction, new information has come forward to confirm that police misconduct and bad lawyering sent the wrong person to prison for William Little's murder. There is no physical evidence linking Jamie to the crime. Jamie's wrongful conviction has not gone unnoticed. Jamie has an army of well-informed supporters. Jamie's case was featured on Crime Watch Daily in 2016, and his case was most recently investigated on the Truth and Justice podcast with Bob Ruff. Jamie is currently represented by the University of Chicago's Exoneration Project. Jamie's attorneys believe strongly in his innocence, and they are fighting valiantly for his freedom. Sadly, in cases like these, the wheels of justice turn very slowly. Jamie has served nearly 21 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. The fight for Jamie's freedom will not end until he is back home with his family. Please join us as we discuss the Jamie Snow case. Welcome to Snow Files. I want to start off this statement by thanking Bob Ruff and his Truth and Justice Cup podcast for featuring me on his program. I want to thank everyone who takes the time and effort to make that project, you know, run like it does. Mike, Zach, all the the uh, transcribers of the episodes, and I and I really want to send a big thank you to uh, Jim Clemente for his involvement in his work in trying to make some expert sense of all of this. I want to send an even bigger thank you out to the Truth and Justice Army of listeners. You know, without you guys, there is no Truth and Justice podcast. It's just a group of people talking into a microphone. So thank you for allowing me into your weekly lives and for trying to help us find out who took the life of Bill Little on March 31st, 1991, Easter Sunday. Those of you who have reached out to me on a personal level, you know, I want you to know that you've made the last few months the easiest of the last 20 years of of this nightmare for me. You know, it, it seems that every time I get to a point where I feel I just can't go on, God sends someone to lift me up. This time, he sent an army of of someone's, and so from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you. 
The purpose of this project is to look at the case through a different lens with a different focus. Bob's focus was to try to figure out who killed the little. And to be honest, he may have very well gotten us onto the right track. You know, time will only tell, and we still want to try to solve it, so we're not trying to stop that, you know. But our focus is going to be a little more on the trial and the evidence of misconduct and corruption that, that took place. You know, just about every wrongful conviction contains misconduct and corruption. If I have to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. The concept of crowdsourcing, the hunt for, for information is still in play here. You know, we need listeners to help us, to help us hunt for, you know, certain evidence and people. Uh, and as we go along, you'll, you'll see what we mean. I mean, there's still stuff out there that I, I think people can help us with. So, you know, and I, and I, and I want to say, you know, Bill Will isn't the only victim in this case. You know, of course, he has shouldered the heaviest burden. Uh, he, he lost his life. His, his family has carried the burden of his loss for almost 30 years now. Myself and my family are victims of this. We have shouldered a heavy burden for many years now as well. But what I want people to know is that the people of Bloomington, Normal, and McLean County are victims in this tragedy as well. A crime of violence was committed on one of your citizens. Imagine all the people in that neighborhood who began living in fear after the crime because the person wasn't caught. It's almost 30 years now, guys, and he still hasn't been caught. The citizens of Bloomington, Normal, and McLean County deserve justice, and you haven't received it yet. We're going to put it all out there for you guys, everything. We're not going to spoon feed you. We're going to put it all on the table and let you decide based on all the evidence if I'm guilty or not. And more importantly, was my trial fair? Was it corrupt? This is not a knock on the McLean County State Attorney's Office as it is today. Or the BPD as it is today. There has always been good and honest truth-seeking, justice-minded people in both departments. I'm, I'm absolutely sure of that. This is, however, a well-deserved knock on the McLean County State Attorney's Office under the direction and supervision of Charles Reiner and Tina Griffin as well as the actions of a, a few uh, BPD officers at the time. And when we're done, if you don't believe in what we're saying, and you don't see the clear picture, then tell us. Or even tell us along the way, if you need to, but base your opinion on the evidence, not on your bias, because the evidence uh, is what we're gonna use. So, you know, because here's what everyone listening to this should consider. This is what I really want people to, to think about, you know. You guys set the standards for your, your 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 law enforcement officials in your community. You elect your state attorneys, your judges, your sheriffs whose policies drive this police force. If you say with your silence, you know, that the, what they did in this case is okay, then you're saying it's okay to do the same thing to someone you love. You know, I've said this before, and I, I will always say it, you know, the frame game doesn't just happen in Chicago and New York, you know, Pittsburgh and Dallas. I'm going to prove to you it happens in the small cities as well. What you guys do with it will determine 
if justice is ever served in this case. Justice for Bill, justice for myself, and the community of Wilmington Normal in Wayne County is really what I want. So tune in and let us know what you think. Now we will hear from Tammy, Nicole, and Jessica. Nicole, I don't know if you know this, but you are a big reason that we're doing this podcast. Because when I heard you on Snowfile say, when my dad got life, we all got life. That gave me chills and made me want to have your story told. Because you guys are forgotten victims in in this. Um, you know, Bill Little was a, was a victim. Your dad was a victim of wrongful conviction. And you kids were all victims also. But nobody thinks about you and what it's done to your life. So we want to give you a platform, you and Jessica, to talk about that. Well, I'm definitely glad that it resonated with you. And I'm glad that it resonates with anybody else um, out there that has dealt with something similar or nothing related. You know, people that have never dealt with anything like that. Um, It's just really, it's really nice to be able to have people resonate with our story like that because it is kind of unique, but it's not as unique as people think it is. Right. I think there's a lot more people that actually can relate to what we've went through that has family that's locked up, you know, wrongful conviction is a lot more known now than before. So I think there's a lot of people that are kind of going through what we are, maybe not a lot, but there's definitely some. Oh, yeah. And I think I think the wrongful conviction makes it even worse. Um, I am going to we are going to talk to someone whose child is in prison for something he did do. But, you know, most of the ones that I know of are wrongful convictions. And and I think that just makes makes it even worse knowing that they're in there and shouldn't be. Yeah, I agree, because I I think it definitely is. Um, no matter what, if you have like a family member that's incarcerated, whether or not they deserve it um, or whether they've done the crime, it's a unique pain to deal with. But then when you add on that someone that's wrongfully convicted, it's it's just compounded and it adds like another layer of um, pain, I guess, and trauma on top of that. So, Tam, how did you get involved? When did you meet Jamie? I guess it was about 13 years ago now. Um, I had read a little bit about him online. I saw uh, it was actually a, a Pilo interview. So the first officer on the scene was Jeff Pilo, and he... Um, he was recanting, uh, well, not really recanting, but clarifying his testimony. When he testified uh, at Jamie's trial, he was officer of the year after the conviction, a few years after the conviction, he was arrested um, for uh, multiple rapes and stalking and using his police equipment to um, to find women and uh, rape and stalk them. And afterwards, uh, and after he was arrested and convicted, then uh, Jamie went to him and said, look, you know, um, I just had some questions for him. And he clarified uh, 
And that's how I found out about him. I read that and I was like, you know, well, that's weird. Uh, And then I wrote him and I said, you know, I don't know if you did this or not, or if you're innocent, but I don't think you got a fair trial. And I had never written anybody in prison before. I'd never been involved with anybody in prison before or the prison system. Boy, have I found out a lot (laughs) about what a mess it is. But he... Uh, he wrote me back and he said, you know, I didn't do this and uh, I'll prove it to you if you'll let me. Here's what I have. And um, he had written his own post-conviction petition and, and he sent me everything that he had. And it actually took me about six months to go through it. And I just became convinced um, that he didn't do this. And then I needed to know what I could do to help because you can't just you know, oh, well, (laughs) he's just locked up and that's it. You know, you can't just throw that away. So uh, then I put the website up and I don't know, just tried to learn as much as I could and help him answer the questions that he had, um, you know, about uh, the the elements that were missing um, in his case. If I can say something about this case and... um, This is just the most wild example of how hard the justice system fights back to right or wrong. Because not only did they, this case is terrible. And I think maybe, Tam, for you, it was quite the shock when you started going, maybe looking at the case and saying, this can't be right. He was convicted on this and all of these mistakes happened. Like what you said with the trial, everything is wrong with that. But the struggle that actually, uh, like Jamie has gone pro se and has filed his own petitions. And then you came along and also started helping him and the exoneration project. Um, and still, it's not, It this case made me realize that not only do you have to be innocent and prove your innocence, but you're also having to fight really hard to even get a chance to do that. Absolutely. So let so let's just circle back and and talk about a little bit of that of that evidence. And and Alan and Kathy, I know you're very well versed on the case. Feel free to jump in uh, in case I missed something, but. Basically, he was convicted on um, faulty witness ID and jailhouse informants. So what you see is all of a sudden these jailhouse informants are popping up 10 years later uh, and saying, uh, yeah, Jamie, confessed to me. I have never seen this many jailhouse informants in one case. Um, in, in fact, uh, on the Snow Files, uh, which is solely about Jamie's case, uh, is a podcast that uh, I produce um, with uh, Leslie Pyers, and uh, Jamie is on the case, and Bruce Fisher. Um, when we had Paul Cialino on there, who is a very well-known, uh, renowned investigator from Chicago, uh, 
when I start when I told him about the jailhouse informants and the number of them, he said, wow, they must not have had any evidence. And he's one of the first people that ever just immediately came to that conclusion because most people say, uh, well, if that many people uh, said he did it, he must have confessed. But all you have to do is scratch the surface and see that all of their stories were different. Um, some of them got deals. Some of them were pressured. You know, this is all stuff that we know now. Uh, a couple of them failed polygraphs. Uh, we found that evidence, which was not um, turned over at trial. So uh, we have the jailhouse informant issue, and then we have the um, the uh, supposed eyewitness. And one of the big things about the eyewitness is nobody saw the crime occur. So these are uh, two young boys. I think they were 14 and uh, 12 uh, who were across the street, I think, 220 feet away I think it was uh, in the oh, evening wasn't it yards was it like two football fields away that's, uh it was really far uh, yeah it was really far wow. <laughs> I've taken a picture from that and I was like you can't wow or I had somebody take a picture of me at that at distance at the scene and not only could you not see me but it would have been seconds because uh, the the a witness said that he was walking out, that he had a long coat in the 90s. You know, I call him the, what was that? The Bon Jovi jet, you know, <laughs> yeah. with the long leather jackets <laughs> yeah. back in the day. Yeah, I think they're called the, dusters. Yeah. Dusters. Okay. So, yeah. but it was leather, you know, mm -hmm. so, um, you know, he said uh, that he saw somebody come out. It was down to his ankles uh, you know, just briefly and go, uh, you know, just walk out the store and turn the corner. Um, Danny Martinez became the star witness, um, who had never identified Jamie over the years. So, uh, now we know there were, uh, even more sessions with the police than we, we knew, but, uh, what was known, uh, at trial um, was that he uh, failed, but this wasn't clarified in Jamie's trial. <laughs> Maybe we'll get to Susan later, but um, anyways, the evidence was uh, Danny Martinez picked the night of the crime. They went up to the station. He did a composite. It was completely... Um, different than another composite that was created. Um, all of their descriptions were different. Danny Martinez said the guy had on a short jacket. It it makes me think, uh, Danny Martinez, uh, his first language is not English. Um, he's Hispanic. So you have to look at the terminology. He just, uh, I can't remember exactly what he was saying, but it, it he kept saying waist length. So it kind of reminded me of the members only jackets that were also popular around that time, the mm -hmm. late 80s. Yeah. Um, and he, in his first report, he said that he just uh, was airing up his tire and saw the saw somebody go around the corner. Um, he, about six, three, three to six months later, he did an in-person lineup, which Jamie was in. 
and he asked two other people to come forward. Um, and actually that night he picked out two photos of two people that were not Jamie. Uh, and then we know now through future uh, police viewings that he was actually presented with Jamie's picture and never picked him out. So the 10 years later, um, he's in a private meeting at the state's attorney's office with no one else present but state's attorneys and uh, detectives. And he ID'd Jamie from a picture in the newspaper and uh, a picture of the in-person lineup that he attended. And by the time he testified, his story was that he ran, he was going into the store. Uh, Jamie was coming out of the store. They became face to face. He'll never, ever, ever forget his eyes. And uh, he looked like he had been up doing drugs all night. So that's what the jury was left with, that positive ID. And that's what he was convicted on. There's no uh, DNA, no fingerprints. Um, he had an alibi. There's nothing that links him to the crime uh, in a physical sense whatsoever. It was not in his neighborhood. It was out of out of his neighborhood. He would have had a car to get there. He didn't have a car. That's what I was going to ask you. I didn't think I thought I remembered he didn't even have a car then to get there. And he had he, no access to a gun either, did he? He did not. Uh, I mean, he didn't have a gun. Right. Um, so I guess Tim, anybody I, can get access to a gun, you know, if they want it. But no, he didn't have a gun. Can I interrupt and, and ask why? how did he even get on the list to begin with? Because he had gotten uh, in trouble. He was a juvenile delinquent. Oh, okay. Um, he was a usual suspect. Um, he was, uh, somebody that, uh, got dragged into the police station whenever, mm -hmm. um, things happened. There had been a string of robberies, uh, uh, and that he was a suspect in another robbery, um, that was earlier. That's how he got in the lineup. Gotcha. And, you know, well, I hate to speculate, but I, I really do think, because, because he was he was in jail, right, for the lineup. I really do think they had they I really do think they arrested him and kept him in there because they had to release him because they didn't have any proof for the other robbery. Right. Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. even this one. I feel like which, you know, it wouldn't be a surprise. It's happened plenty of times. They wanted him in that lineup. So they needed to have him incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And he did resist uh, being in the lineup uh, per his public defender's advice. Um, you know, so that was an issue that they made a big deal out, you know, in court out of. Um, now we know you really don't want to stand in a lineup because you misidentification is a very common thing. Mm -hmm. Now we know that. Right. And also about Martinez, the two police officers that responded to the silent alarm, they saw Martinez, but no one else. So at the time that Martinez claims he saw someone come out of the gas station, police were already there and didn't see someone come out. Martinez. 
why didn't they think he was the perpetrator instead of the witness? Correct. Well, I mean, that's a very valid question. Mm. Uh, we have a lot of, you know, people that are very suspicious of Martinez. Mm. So Martinez lived directly beside. Yeah, next door. yeah, it was right next door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right next door. He was right next door to the uh, gas station. So there was a fence between his house and the and where like the air pump was. The chain link fence, right? Yes. Yeah, I didn't think it was a wooden one. Go ahead. I'm at, sorry. The, at the time, I believe there might be a wooden one there now, but okay. it was a chain link fence. His story was that, uh, uh, you know, he had that car was like an old beater that he used for work. And, you know, the tire would frequently go down. So basically he would pull out of his driveway, which is literally right next to it, and pull into that air pump and pump up his pump up his tire um, every week. So he said, and then he he was going to go in to get pop or soda or something. It was like family movie night or something like that. But he never did make it into to the store. So he said he's airing up his tire. And this is a that's such a such a good question, uh, Jude, because it this is what convinced me. In the beginning, without even knowing Jamie, that it was a lie. Like this was the first, this was the thing that I said was impossible because what you would have had was Martinez airing up his tire, according to Martinez's story. There's a bank, a credit union across the street. They, he, approached on a silent alarm. So he pulled up in the back of the credit union and walked on foot. He was going to approach the store. Now, at the time, a lot of, there were a lot of silent alarms triggering um, because it has something to do with the cash register. They had them rigged in the cash register and it was kind of easy to, to trigger. So they didn't know if it was real or not. So he approaching and he's standing across the street and we can hear on the dispatch tape him watching Martinez air up his tires and then Pilo says he gets in his car and backs up and leaves like but goes like around the block you know to go back it's a one-way street so you know he would go around the block at almost the same time. There's a little uh, four-way uh, right there on the corner of the credit union, and that's where Officer Williams pulled up. So they were both pulling up, and there's a discrepancy about who got there first and whatever. Um, but he said he was watching the door, and that nobody ever came out. And Pilo never saw anybody come out. Um, but what Pilo did see was he said he started uh, that Martinez started walking towards the store, but then t- just turned around and got back in his car and left. And he's like, hold this plate, hold this license plate, because, you know, we want to look at this uh, because we don't know what's happening here, which he should have stopped him, mm-hmm. period. Right. <laughs> um, but uh he just then he then he saw that he was just a neighbor, um, and that we're able to talk to them. 
But Mar- Martinez's story is that when he walked, turned around and walked towards the store that he almost ran into Jamie, he would have had to be in his line of his field of sight, his line of view. He would have had to see Jamie if he was watching Pilo. That's what convinced me. It's just, it was impossible for him not to see because he watched him all the way. And in a 1999 interview that the new detectives did with Pilo, they were asking him about that and they, and, and they, and they really dug in. Well, how far was he from the store before he turned around? Was he halfway to the store? Was he you know, uh, almost to the door. Uh, no, he was about 15 feet, about 20 feet. So they really dug into that, that issue. And that's what got me because he saw him walk up and he saw him turn around and it's just impossible if there was a suspect there and they were two feet apart and so close that he could tell that he was up partying all night and doing drugs <laughs> and that he'll never forget his eyes then, you know, then then there's a huge discrepancy there. So Martinez did not see that. As far as his, his why, why didn't they test gun residue on his hands? Why didn't they check his car? Um, it, there was a cash drawer stolen. Um, so in other words, whoever did the crime took the whole cash drawer. So it could have easily been sitting in a car. Right. It was never searched. He was he was never a suspect, although he was the only one on the scene. I don't believe that it was a mistake. I don't believe that that ID was a faulty, um, a mistaken identity. Um, I believe that Martinez in some way was coerced into making that statement 10 years later. Um, but because he didn't pick him out of the lineup, he didn't. You know, when when he was first asked, he didn't see the person. I mean, he saw. He said he saw somebody come out, but he didn't. He said he uh, saw somebody go around the yeah, go yeah. around the corner. Yeah, yeah. and but, it couldn't have been that that if Pilo saw all of this, um, that he could have seen. You know, uh, that he could have seen somebody come out of the store either, yeah. because what he says in his initial report was he saw somebody going around the corner out of the corner of his eye while he was putting air in the tires none of it made sense whatsoever uh it just doesn't jive and they muddied it up uh really muddied it up at trial um it should have been all of that should have been clarified um the boys that were across the street um they we have not ever talked to a Juan Luna Carlos Luna was the old Older one, he he did testify, and he did pick him out of a lineup, but his ID was, I, how did you ID him? Well, I just closed my eyes and imagined everyone doing it, uh, and he he was the closest to the person that I saw. It was a terrible ID. Wow. Uh, we have since gotten a memo from. Um, Freedom of Information Act requests that uh, shows that there was a detective on the scene that interviewed those boys. And he was like, they didn't see anything. In fact, the boys could not make a composite. The, 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 per, the artist 
said they don't know enough information, like they can't give me enough information to even draw something from uh, their memory. Mm-hmm. So his uh, that that wasn't you know um, taken. Uh, he never he never got a although he was the only one that ID'd him that night. Um, and he said, well, what did he say? He did. He has since given an affidavit. Of course, he's a grown man now. Yeah. So he actually said something, I think, in his affidavit about um, I figured they got the right person or I figured. And I think those words made me think, oh, they told him who, who they wanted yeah. him to ID yeah. uh, because it was a, an odd way to. To phrase things. Now, the third eyewitness, when I say that very loosely, because again, no one saw the crime occur. Mm-hmm. No one saw Bill Little get shot. Right. <laughs> These are just people. Um, was a guy who said that uh, he, Gerardo Gutierrez, he lived in the neighborhood and he was in the store, I guess, like 10 minutes um, earlier, he went, he, uh, made a purchase and then went home and said he heard about it on the TV or radio and then came back to talk to police to say, Hey, so he's, he told police when I was in the store, um, there was a man standing by, um, Bill Little and Bill Little wasn't as friendly as he always is. In fact, he didn't even talk he looked nervous the man was just looked kind of shady and turned around he said that when he got three dollars worth of gas and gave him like a dollar and some change for it right that wouldn't even get a gallon nowadays (laughs) but he uh he got three dollars worth of gas uh gave him a dollar and some change and then uh, he, his hands were shaking so badly that either the change was dropped or he thought the change was going to be dropped, like when he handed it to him or, or something like that. He just and and he gave a vivid uh, description, um, which was also uh, the one that they used to put out um to the media and to the public saying, have you seen this guy? This is what the, you know, that was the composite that was put out. Um, Danny Martinez's composite was not put out, which looks nothing like um, Gutierrez's uh, composite. The guy was skinny. Um, you know, he had a, a really, really thin nose, which nobody can say Jamie's got a thin nose. Um <laughs> He had a prominent scar on his chin and an earring in his left ear. And uh, there was none of that in Danny Martinez. It wasn't until uh, a couple couple years later that they released the other composite that didn't look anything like that composite when they were trying to solve the crime. I hope I haven't confused everyone. But And Jamie doesn't have a scar on his chin or an earring, correct? No. He even yeah. said he had a gold ball. A left earring with a gold ball huh. and a and a scar on his chin that was so fresh that it had stitches in it. Wow! Um, it was very distinctive uh, characteristics um, that that he described. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you join us again next week for part two. And if you haven't already, please subscribe so you can get notified of when our new episodes release and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Touch by Crown. Thank you, and we hope to see you again next week.